Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plotcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Real quick before we get to the podcast, I wanted to make sure you knew that Douglas Wilson has a brand new introduction in the Christian Heritage series. The newest edition is J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism with an introduction from Pastor Wilson. Go find that and the rest of the Heritage series at canonpress.com. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. This is episode 177. This is the podcast. If you're looking for the podcast, and further, if you were looking for episode 177, I am pleased to announce that you've come to the right place. As I'm recording this, we're still in the year 2020. I'm recording this right at the end of uh, December. I record four at a time. So, I record once a month. And so, this is the fourth, the fourth one I've recorded today, which means it's a month out, right? So that means by the time you're listening to this, somebody will have been inaugurated as president. But as I'm recording this, I don't know who that's going to be. There's going to be the um, electoral colleges met. Those votes, votes have been cast. They're going to be taken to Congress. They're going to be certified or not on January 6th in Washington, D.C. Uh, there will likely be objections raised. There has to be at least one representative and one senator who objects. And if that happens, then the two bodies, the Senate and the House, go back to their respective chambers and debate the issue for two hours. There are movements afoot to decertify some of the electors that have been sent. And there's going to be apparently a monster rally in Washington, D.C. on January 6th on behalf of President Trump. And it's uh, growing increasingly dicey. Okay, so that's where we are. And of course, some people are telling us, it's all over, it's all over, move along. Other people saying, no, no, we're, st- we're still, we got some more cracking in the basement we're going to release. And, uh, and so, here we are. So, I'm not pretending to have an inside scoop on which way it's going to go. Uh, as you're listening to this, it will either be uh, President Biden or President Trump. But I think it's going to be a raucous time, whichever way. And I, what I want to talk about here is that raucous time. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk primarily about who's sitting on top of that raucous time, but just simply the fact that it's going to be one. All right. So, I believe that our prayer as Christians, we ought to be prepping ourselves and praying and asking God to do what it takes to bring us to the point of repentance. We are in dire need of national repentance. We see this on multiple fronts, but the most obvious place where we need to be a repentant people, it has to do with what we've done in the abortion carnage, what has happened there. We've killed, executed, slaughtered tens of millions of babies in the name of constitutional choice. In the Obergefell decision, we have sanctified something, sought to call holy matrimony, something that God calls an abomination. We have a government school system, coast to coast, that indoctrinates school children in the tenets of a secular humanism, a godless humanism, and it's a mess. Now, 
two years ago, three years ago, it was a stable mess, but it was a mess. Anybody with an open Bible, uh, anybody who knows what God requires of us, he's shown you a man uh, what he requires, do justice, love mercy, walk with humility. We weren't doing that. But even though we weren't doing that, things were stable. The GDP was uh, robust. We all had a high standard of living and, and so on. So things were stable, but displeasing to God. Things were stable, but displeasing to God. Now, what we should be asking for, I think what Christians should be asking for, is for God to destabilize us and destabilize our idols. There is absolutely no way, I don't, I'm convinced that there's absolutely no way for God to destabilize an idolatrous system and to do it by toppling the idols without the whole system rocking, right? If the system is idolatrous, if we have been in the service of mammon, if the United States has served the gods of money and convenience and so on, uh, there's no way those idols can come down without shaking the whole superstructure. And Christians should want that. Now, th think about this for a minute. The events of this last year, even though I'm convinced the pandemic was a shamdemic, and even though, nevertheless, the uh, public health officials have made a thing out of it, and it's had, it certainly had enormous economic repercussions, it's, uh, it's looking like it's going to do more to disrupt government education in North America than we Christians in the private education uh, world could have done in a century. In other words, God appears to be a believer in creative destruction. God appears to be a believer in creative destruction. And we should be praying that he would do what it takes and that he not stop a week too soon. Instead of saying, oh, Lord, my peace, and my, my, peace my comfort, my security, my 401k, my, my house, my routine, all of this has been disrupted, would you please put it back? We should be saying, Lord, if this disruption to my life and my convenience and our people and all of that, if this disruption is what it takes to get us to stop killing babies, to get us to stop pretending that men can marry men and women can marry women, for us to stop pretending that we can educate children made in the image of God without reference to a transcendental reality. We should want God to just not, we, we don't want God to do more than it takes, but we want God to do everything that it takes. And it seems to me that the disruption and the lack of security and the uh, turmoil and the tumult that we have been going through, and it looks like we're going to be going, going through a good deal more, Christians can be joyful and secure and confident in this because what they're praying for is this kind of creative disruption, this kind of creative destruction. God does this sort of thing all the way through the Bible. Um, God does it over and over. He's done it many times. He's done it to many empires. Uh, this is an Ozymandian moment. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. And um, we, we need to take those words to heart. Continuing on with uh, podcast episode 177. This is, of course, hamartiology. This next word in our hamartiological study refers to a sin 
but it does so idiomatically. In other words, it's not a sin according to the letter, but the context and usage make it plain that a sin is intended. The word is graodes, graodes, G-R-A-O-D-E-S, graodes, and refers to old wives, old wives. Now, of course, it's not a sin to be an old wife, but it is a sin to tell old wives' tales, which is what we're talking about here. Old wives' tales is an idiomatic expression referring to silly and or superstitious talk. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. So, Paul tells Timothy, refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. So, Paul is reminding Timothy that God created all things, and they are therefore to be used with gratitude and thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. So, the, the context immediately prior to this is the goodness of God in, in giving us everything to enjoy. He is supposed, uh, and he, Timothy, is supposed to remind the brothers of this valuable truth, and in contrast, Paul tells Timothy to reject or refuse profane tales and old wives' tales. So, Paul tells Timothy, reject, refuse, have nothing to do with profane tales and old wives' tales. Now, the word underneath profane could be rendered as pointless or worthless. Reject worthless tales or pointless tales. The same point is being made through the use of the phrase old wives' tales as well. They too are worthless. And they are worthless, empty, hollow even though they have been, quote-unquote, sanctified, uh, having been passed on over many, many generations. We are talking here about petty superstitions. So, don't have anything to do with old wives' tales. If someone says, uh, oh, you, you know, if, uh, <laughs> let's say your baby's having trouble teething, and an old woman in the village tells you to leave a saucer of milk out behind the fridge for, for the kitchen fairy, and the kitchen fairy will stop bothering your kid. Uh, that would be an example of an old wives' fable, an old wives' tale. Don't have anything to do. Don't do, Timothy just discourage that kind of thing. No, it's a sin. Okay, uh, onward uh, in our pursuit of finishing the podcast, episode one seventy-seven. The book I want to review uh, this time is a book by John Bunyan, and no, not The Pilgrim's Progress, and no, not The Holy War. This is simply a book of straight teaching by Bunyan, and it's called The Fear of God, simply called The Fear of God, John Bunyan. As it happened, I got, I got this book on Audible, and I listened to it, and was greatly, really blessed by it. And one of the things that Nancy and I do in the morning is we have a devotional time together where, where we pray together. and commit the day to the Lord and do we work our way through different books. We have different things that we work through at different times. But one of the, one of the books uh, we had just uh, finished or were about ready to finish. And so, I had listened to The Fear of God by Bunyan. And this is one of those books that was so good that I I've only done this a handful of times where uh, I finished a book and having finished it, I wanted to start over and just go back to the beginning and do it again. And so, what I did is I listened to it in my truck, and uh, having uh, basically gotten to the end of that book, and we did the same with a, a book that Nancy and I were reading together, 
I ha- happened to have a hard copy of The Fear of God by John Bunyan. And so I pulled that off the shelf, and and we're and so Nancy and I are reading it aloud uh, in our morning devotions, reading a page or two, and uh, and this this book, I think Charles Spurgeon once said of of John Bunyan that if you pricked him anywhere, his blood would run bibline. Uh, John Bunyan would bleed Bible verses, and this is very evident in this book, and it's not just. Bible verses crammed in his head any old way. It's very, very clear that he is um, intelligently engaging with the text and and doing it in just a just a marvelous way. So, uh, for example, this morning when we were reading, and this is something I missed when I was listening to it, but th- this is a this is a good example of how you understand that someone is a great. A, a great teacher. When they point something out in the text, there it is, lying on the surface of the text. There it is. And and once they've pointed it out, you can't stop seeing it. You can't avoid seeing it. So in the in his book, The Fear of God, this is just one example. And this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of nugget that you're going to uh, encounter all the way through this book. He's talking about in in the early early part of the book, he one of the points he makes is that the scriptures are our fear. The scriptures themselves are our fear, and we are to um, believe this because the Bible describes itself as the fear of God. And you might say, well, what is that even supposed to mean? He then cites a passage that I was uh, very familiar with, read it countless times, sang it a bunch of times. You know, here we are. It's Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The, rule of, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired, and it goes on. Now, what Bunyan points out is that in verse 9, where it says the fear of the Lord is clean, it's not talking about our subject, it's not talking there about our fear of God, as I've assumed forever. But it's talking about this content of Scripture, and it's evident. Notice what he's talking about, verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. So, you have one, two, three, four, five, six, six different ways of talking about, talking about the Scriptures. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the rules. So, why would number five suddenly jump elsewhere and be talking about our subjective fear of the Lord? No, it's talking about the scriptures. The law is perfect. The testimony is sure. The precepts are right. The commandment is pure. The fear is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. The fear of the Lord, the scriptures are our fear. Well, there's that kind of insight all the way through this book. It's, it's just a great book. The Fear of God, John Bunyan. Mm-hmm.